Hey, welcome to another episode of the Manaverse Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Traplin, and this is session number 14. Hey everybody, on this episode of the Maniverse Podcast, we have Steve Port as our featured guest. Steve is the owner of Legion Supplies and Legion Events, and he's also the organizer of the Magic Cruise. Now, if you've never heard of the Magic Cruise, I definitely re- recommend that you should look into it, because this thing is friggin' awesome, and over the course of the episode, Steve will make a great case as to why you want to be on his next cruise. But the main reason I brought Steve on today was because... I wanted to talk about game publishing, specifically what it takes to to go from rough design to finished product. How do you go? What are the interim stages? Well, Steve's got us covered because he recently went through a Kickstarter in order to launch his new game, Foretold, which you can check out on his website at Legion Supplies or Legion Events. If uh, If you're looking for a new game for your group, definitely check it out. And if you have an idea for a game, this is an episode you don't want to miss. So let me introduce you to Steve Port. Uh, hi, I'm Steve Port. I, uh, I'm the owner of Legion Events and Legion Supplies and former owner of Legion Games uh, and Misty Mountain Games. I've sold both of those stores off within the last couple of years and uh, now uh, solely focusing on events and uh, supply side. Okay, well, how did you get into the game business? Uh, I started uh, back in uh, the early 90s, uh, originally uh, running small leagues and and tournaments in my house for a bunch of friends. Uh, The last big thing I did before Magic came out was a Blood Bowl League. Uh, There's a game from Games Workshop that is sometimes supported, sometimes not, um, called Blood Bowl, and it's a board game. Uh, with elves and orcs and dwarves as football players. And I did a, did a league for that. Uh, somewhere in the middle of that, Magic came out, and uh, we started playing that, and everything sort of shifted into that. And then in the, uh, somewhere in 94, I sanctioned my first Magic tournament. Um, for Jump forward a few more years, uh, I started running Magic uh, Pro Tour qualifiers and pre-releases. And then in the early 2000s, uh, 2001, I opened my first store, 2006, I opened my second store, and 2009, I opened Legion Supplies. Um, when uh, when I was having a little bit of difficulty finding some of the things that I wanted as a store owner, I, I just started producing them myself, and uh, and got into like that. What? Um, specifically, the the what I was trying to do originally was make uh, make custom sleeves with my store logo on them. I wanted I wanted to have promotional sleeves for my store. Nobody did it. Uh, you couldn't you couldn't get them done, so I, I I looked for years till I found a vendor that was able to do it, uh, and finally did that. And that's that started for a Grand Prix uh, for Grand Prix Minneapolis in 2009. I had those produced, and somewhere in the process of making those, uh, every sleeve vendor on the planet went out of black sleeves. Uh, there was a period of about a month or a month and a half where every every distributor in the country. Uh, was out of black sleeves, Ultra Pro, Dragon Shield, Max, everybody. They were gone for some reason. Um, 
and I tried multiple vendors and uh, multiple brands, and it didn't matter. I couldn't get a single pack of black sleeves in my store for about a month. That's weird. Yeah, it was completely random, and it annoyed the crap out of me. So, Did you ever find out what happened? Um, it just uh, one of those. It's just a random thing. Uh, you know, everybody ran out at the same time, and hmm. uh, you know it's really unusual for that to happen. And it, it, I think it's only ever happened once since. Um, but uh, during that period of time, I said, "Well, I'm going to call my guys that make sleeves, and I'm going to order some plain color sleeves, and I'm going to stick them in my garage, and then I'll always have them." Um, so I did that, and at the time. Um, uh, when I when I did it, I, I talked to Bob Maher, who owns ACD Distribution, and uh, and said, "Hey, I've got these things coming in. Would you guys sit on them if you want to put them in your warehouse? And if you guys ever run out of them again, just sell these." Like I didn't tell him to push them. I didn't tell him to uh, to expand on them. It was never uh, was not originally a plan in my head that it was going to that it was going to blow up. I, I just thought it would be a, it was something I was doing for myself. And, you know, maybe if I could make a couple of bucks on the side, it would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned very, very quickly that there was a lot of demand there. Um, we, we came with some, some basic colors of sleeves, the, the basic five colors of magic we made in plain sleeves. And then I also made uh, some art sleeves. And the very first ones we made uh, said RTFC on them, mm-hmm. uh, for, which is a judge thing that read the freaking card that it, we kind of did because we knew we had a built-in audience that the judges would buy those. And uh, and then I we decided well we we need to make we need to make a few more because of the way the plates are set up for these sleeves let's put something else on it we kind of circled the wagons and said what should we put on this sleeve we don't really know hmm somebody says well everybody likes bacon so we put three strips of bacon and said mm, bacon slapped it on a sleeve and uh, I I don't know how many total we've sold of those it, it's somewhere in the fifty to sixty thousand pack range now. Um, over the over the last six years, not bad. Yeah, so they, guess everybody uh, does love bacon. Indeed, everybody does love bacon. So um, <clears throat> it's the oldest sleeve I make, and it is still it's still one that we produce. Uh, it's it's obviously slowed down a much a bunch over the year, but every once in a while we have to reorder them, and uh, so we're still making those. Uh, the response on that was so incredible that uh, we just started ramping up some new designs. We realized we'd hit a nerve. Uh, by giving the the public something that uh, that they didn't have otherwise, at the time you either had plain sleeves or if you had an art sleeve, it had a dragon or a half naked chicken chainmail with a sword on it or mm. or something something fantastic. But uh, um, you know we know that magic players come from all over the place. Uh, sure, they're they're interested in fantasy, but they're interested in a lot of other things as well. Um, they're interested in football and food and uh, and hunting and, and Pop culture. a lot of other things, you know. So we started making designs that didn't specifically say, "Hi, I'm a fantasy nerd," mm-hmm. and uh, and the response has been fantastic. Obviously, we've we've been uh, doubling gross revenue every year for the last since I started in 2009. Very um, nice. I had to expand multiple times, and I, I just expanded into a new warehouse. Uh, we signed a lease on it last week, and now I'm uh, opening up a, a European distribution center as well. On your way to world domination. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. But yeah. uh, but it's uh, we get a lot of requests from folks over in Europe wanting to get our stuff, and it's just too expensive to to pay to ship small amounts to Europe from here. So yeah, I'm sure we're it is. bringing it to them. We're going to, we're going to open up a European distribution center and sell direct to retail stores there. We're probably not going to sell to individuals right away. Um, laws for 
uh, out of Germany for selling, which is where we're opening the warehouse for selling on a website online or, or actually kind of complicated. So we're, we're starting with just selling direct to retail and then we'll, uh, we'll hopefully move into selling direct to consumers at some point in time. Okay. So I have a couple questions. Sure. Uh, why Germany and why, uh, why not another so, European country? Uh, Germany is, uh, there, there's a, there's a fellow that's been working for me for, since the stronghold pre-release. So that would have been, uh, mm-hmm. January of 98, uh, named Mark Duda. Uh, Mark Duda has worked as a judge and or an ops person for me on the event side for a long, long time. Uh, a few years ago, he took over being the manager in my Minnesota-based store. And uh, and now he's kind of done with that and was ready to move on. Um, the last uh, At the end of December, I sold, I sold my store to, uh, to Dreamers Vault, uh, which is another, another great store here in Minneapolis uh, owned by Jason Webster. Um, and he's taken over running that store, and Duda's going to be moving in to, moving on to work with me. Now, the reason Duda is relevant to this is because Duda is actually a German citizen. Mm. <laughs> he's, uh, he moved here when he was a young boy with his parents who got moved over here for, for work and, uh, and has lived here ever since. So he's lived here since he was uh, 10 or something like that or 9. And, um, but he never got around to getting his U.S. citizenship. He is still a German citizen. He's a resident alien uh, here. But uh, when we were kind of talking about how we can get into Europe, he sort of volunteered maybe being able to move back to Germany and, and start hmm. it from there. So I have an in. <laughs> that's pretty uh, good. It's, 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 uh, that's kind of the way a lot of things have worked through me over life. A little bit of serendipity. Um, uh, you could call it luck. Some people say luck is nothing but preparedness, meeting, opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of where we are. Um, and, and, and so Duda's going to move over there and, and take it over. Um, the the important thing for me with 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 Mark with Mr. Duda there is that he I've known him for a very very long time uh, and I trust him exclusively. Uh, I know that anything that happens over there, if, if bad things happen, that I, I don't have to worry about whether it's him that's messing with me or not. You know, I've known him twenty years now almost. Yeah, you can. Well, I'd hope at that point you'd be able to trust the person. <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah, you know, you know, sometimes you get surprised and. We hear about it all the time in business where mm. things, things go bad, but uh, but it, looking good so far. Well, that's good. Let's hope nothing happens. All right, and then uh, the uh, second question was: You mentioned that you sold two stores, or right. you had two stores, but you sold one. I sold both. Sold both. Yep. About two years ago, oh, I guess maybe three years ago now. This summer, I can't. Or this this spring, I can't remember exactly. It's either two or three. Um, I sold Misty Mountain Games in Madison, Wisconsin, which was my first store. I opened that in 2001. Um, and I sold that to the then manager, uh, Ben Rizlov, uh, who was, uh, I had moved from Madison to Minneapolis a few years ago, um, for a number of reasons, some, some personal reasons. And, um, and it was, it was harder for me to control that store and kind of, kind of be involved in it. Uh, and I realized at one point that it was it was probably just time to sell sell the store. It's too hard running two stores from so far away when I was so busy with the supplies growing so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sold that store to Ben, and then uh, when we started talking about moving Duda up here, uh, the kind of the word got out, and uh, Jason Webster from Dreamers approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in selling it. I hadn't planned on selling it, 
Uh, but we, we kind of started talking about it, and, and it seemed to line up, and it was within the plan that he was kind of expecting to move down into the area anyway. So uh, it was good for him and, and good for me, and uh, he's a great guy to buy the store. That sounds pretty convenient, actually. Yeah, again, it's it's a lot of serendipity. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, kind of just you know keeping my eye out for, uh, for the right thing at the right time and seizing the opportunities when you get them. Yeah. So what was the sale process like? Like how uh, uh, how complicated was the whole well, thing? Because I I've also known Jason a long long time. Uh, he you know we've been kind of in the same pool up here of of, of magic based uh, organizers and, and owners. I've known him now you know for fifteen fifteen ish years, and uh, um, and just know and respect him. He's uh, any, anybody that knows him uh, can tell you that he's he's just a he's a genuine guy. And uh, so when he approached me and I said, well, of all the people I could think about selling my store to, he would certainly be one of them. Um, and we kind of talked about it and I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to play around with the price. I, I figured out what my price was, um, laid the price down to him and said, this is what I'm willing to take for it. Uh, it's, it's not really a negotiable offer uh, because it's anything less. I know I, uh, I'm, I'm really a fan of, I don't play a lot of time negotiating things. You tell me the thing that you want to buy. Or what you know? Do you tell me what you're willing to pay for something, and I decide if I can take that or not, mm. or vice versa? I'll tell you what I'm willing to sell it for, and if you don't want it for that, then so be it. We'll move along. I don't spend a whole lot of time uh, playing around trying to trying to min max on that. It's uh, it, it just seems to I know what I want for it, and this is what I'm willing to get, and I'll just start with my bottom dollar, and that's what we that's what we did on that, and he agreed that that price was completely reasonable, and uh, and probably between the time of Deciding whether you're going to sell it or not, uh, to actually penning the uh, penning the contract to sell it was within a month and a half, and I think most of that was actually just writing up the contract. Hmm. Okay, that's uh, fairly interesting. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I understand it's not the way a lot of people do things, um, mm-hmm. uh, but it, again, it's it's a little bit of that is the opportunity that I've gotten um, by by being in this industry so long and knowing so many people, I, I have the ability to say, you know, make judgments on people. I think this will work with that person. It won't work with that person. Um, and I, and I can move ahead. I, I spend a lot of time making decisions based on, on, uh, on my gut feeling about them. Intuition pays off intuition, most of the time. Intuition once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm guessing the whole selling of the store wasn't the, end game when you started it right no it wasn't um I, my initial intent was uh so as a as an event organizer uh and and i'm sure anybody who's involved in, in in the magic side of things uh will realize that over the last several years things have changed a lot as far as, as mm-hmm. where that happens there was a point in time where where premier organizers such as myself were 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 into a lot of things and i was doing i was running for various companies, I was running sometimes six to eight events a month uh, between several states, and um, uh, and it and it was getting very busy. And then that kind of started tapering off, and then people started changing the way we interact with with our customers, with with gamers. Uh, Wizards changed their rules and move move pre releases into stores, move mm-hmm. PTQs into stores, um, and I I had my stores before that, so I fared pretty well when that change happened. Um, but part of the reason I originally opened my store is that um, my my events company the it, it's not something I can hand off uh, to to my kids to to a trusted advisor 
the company is built on me, and when I say I'm done, then that company goes away. So I don't have any legacy that I can do with that. Um, I can't I can't set my kids up for for future saying here's a business that you can take over or here here's a thing that that I built that I that I would like you to continue uh, because once I'm done it's done uh, wizards will give that contract to somebody else mm-hmm. um, and uh, so I originally started the store as sort of a a more concrete thing that I can well here's a game store I will start this game store and I, and that will be a thing that I can build and I can eventually pass to much to my kids or, uh, or something else. And, uh, or, you know, worst case is sell it off down the line if that came to it. But I really, I really expected that it was going to be a thing that I would, I would hand to them directly. And, uh, and then, uh, when I opened the second store in 2006, that really felt like that was kind of the way it was going. And then a few years later when the supplies thing started to happen, um, my, you know, my priorities on that sort of shifted because, uh, the, we took off so fast on Legion supplies on the on the deck boxes and sleeves that it, it was sucking up so much of my time, and I realized that I was it was a little more efficient time, I, making a little bit better money than I was at the store. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I've always considered that I'm not the best retailer. A lot of people will tell me that I that I ran a great store and that I was a great retailer. I always felt like there are a lot of people out on the planet that do it way way better than I do. Um, I was passable, but I was not amazing at it. Um, and I built reasonable stores, and people liked coming there. Uh, but it, it really felt like it was uh, it was something that other people do better than me. Well, you must um, have been doing something, right? I was. It certainly was. Uh, and, and I I would I would hazard a guess that I was doing it better than lots. Uh, I don't know most, but better than lots. Um, and uh, but uh, as an example, Jason Webster, who just bought my my Minnesota store, is a significantly better retailer than I am. Uh, he's got a much better focus. Uh, he, he does, he does things I think much better than I do as far as a, just a pure retailer uh, goes, uh, which is why I was so happy to sell to him. I know that this thing that I build and, and I do, and I do love and appreciate this thing that I built, uh, the Legion games and Misty Mountain games. Uh, I, I love them both and they're a part of me. Um, so there's a little emotional attachment to it. It's good to see it go to somebody I know who will take care of it and not just take care of it, but, but grow it and expand it. And your business will live on, right? My business will live on, and now I have the supplies, which is actually something that that is that is kind of taken over. Uh, and uh, matter of fact, my son John came to work for me last year after he graduated college, and is currently running my warehouse and is is kind of learning the business from ground up as as we grow. And uh, so, whenever you know, I'm pushing fifty these days. So hopefully, in, in some amount of years down the road, another ten or fifteen, I can think about retiring. Uh, and he'll be at that point where I'll be able to just hand him off and say, "Now here's a company for you to run." Um, that must be pretty cool. It is really, really cool. Um, he uh, and he's he's fantastic too. He's uh, you know I'm obviously very, very proud of him. He he's uh, uh, he's done a lot of great things coming in, and I can't even imagine trying to run this company without him now. And uh, I think when I first brought him in, I had a couple of other employees, and it was a little bit of a question. Well, he's bringing in his son. What is mm. matter? And then. Within a couple of days, it was like, "Oh no, we get it. We see why he's here now. He's uh, he's not just your son. He's also yeah, he's good he's, for the job. He does not mind working. Uh, he, I guess he picked up the work ethic from the old man. That's also a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you just jump back a few minutes. You mentioned yep. that you consider Jason to be a better retailer than you. Yep. Why? Like, what what is it about him that makes him so good? He, uh, I think, he pays a little bit better attention to product lines. Um, he's, uh, 
I, I mentioned before that sometimes uh, some of the things that I do, I, I, I play on intuition. Um, I, I tend to get attachments to some things uh, which I don't, which I shouldn't in the retail game. Um, when you're, when you start getting emotionally attached to some things, you tend to make poor decisions about them, about whether I should continue doing this or continue supporting that. Um, you know, how much play space should we have? Well, you know, maybe it's less than it, than we have because I'm, I'm kind of committed to the, to the event space because that's kind of where it came from. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he's just able to separate and make more cold decisions on facts as opposed to emotion. Uh, which is, I think, I think you need a thing you need to do business wise. Yeah, you definitely don't want to get attached to your inventory necessarily. Correct. Correct. I've had other people mention the same kind of problem that, depending on who you are and where you, what your background is, you can be like a board game enthusiast, and right. you're actually becoming, you have difficulty selling the games because you like them so much. Or something along those lines, well, or you make choices that great, might not fit your pro, your customers. How your emotion and your attachments to things can affect uh, what you're selling. Uh, back in the day, back in, in Madison, um, I had a, originally I had a co-owner in my Misty Mountain Madison store, and uh, we and and he's a great guy. I've known him for a real, real long time. We kind of got into it together, and he, uh, but he was a role player uh, primarily. Like that, that was his. His call to geekiness was he was a role player. And uh, matter of fact, that's how he and I really kind of originally became friends is we met at a job and then realized we were both role players and we would start playing D&D together. Hmm. Um, many years later, um, when he was controlling the ordering and such, uh, I, we had to go do a walk around. It, it was easier for me to do it because it was not my personal issue, but I had to say, look, we're, We've got approximately 25% of our standing inventory is role-playing books, and it was under 10% of our sales last year. So we have a clear disparity about what we're picking up. We have all of these books we'll never move. Um, and that was that was in mid-2000s when, when role-playing books, there was a period of time when they when there was just a big surge with the open license. You could There were all kinds of things coming out. Um, and they were all getting picked up, and very, very few of them were getting sold. Like, we were picking up two copies of something, selling one, and the other one is sitting there for forever, mm. um, where we should have been picking up one and saying, we sold it, let's do a little party. Um, yeah, so anyway, that that's the sort of thing. He, he was committed and, and attached to role-playing games, so we ended up spending significantly more on role-playing games than we probably should have, uh, and it ended up kind of weighing down our inventory and was kind of kind of killing our monthly sales. We were spending more on role playing books every month than we were making on them, and uh, and that was that was a big problem. So we had to kind of recorrect correct that and, and and change what we were ordering on that. Um, I think Jason makes those sorts of decisions better than, mm. than a lot of people. Um, I was able to see this and tell Dave, no, we we can't do it that way because I I wasn't I wasn't connected to the role playing books like he was. Uh, but I, I definitely have that same problem personally about, about things that I carry. Just a different bias towards different a bias. Yep, different, different product. Biases. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah, so I, I can see why that would be a problem in a business setting. Great for a hobbyist, but... Uh, right, right. Yeah, not for the cold you calculating. We're a nice source for role-playing games for the, for the seven people who would come in shopping. Mm -hmm. for them. <laughs> All kinds of variety. Yeah. Okay, so why did you have a partner? That was another, um, another originally, thing. I, I couldn't do it by myself. When I first started my store, in addition to the events uh, that I was doing it, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and by the way, word to anyone who's, who's starting a business, if you can do it without a partner, do it without a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't mean a trusted employee, uh, someone to come along and, and, and help carry on that. Uh, but ultimately, my opinion is, and I know, I know other people who have partnerships that work well, uh, the partnerships I've had, eventually something, something breaks. Um, a decision has to get made. Um, and if you're 50-50 partners uh, and you have to give your, your partner equal weight, uh, sometimes it's, it's hard to come to a decision about something that's, that's very difficult. Mm. Uh, so I recommend not having partners if you can get away with it. Originally, I had to have uh, I had to have a partner. I had a full time job uh, back in the day. I was an electromechanical tech. I, I worked forty five to fifty hours a week, and I was running events uh, for Magic at that time, um, about two weekends a month for the most part. And then, so in addition to doing my full time job, I was doing that. So the idea was coming into a store. I needed a partner to kind of help help me work hours. We'd hire somebody to to work the counter, and then. Uh, there's there's no way I, I could do it all by myself, um, and and I needed a little more cash. Like we each brought in fifty uh, percent of the cash we started up with, and uh, um, and I needed that. So after uh, it was probably probably six years or so in, I, I bought Dave out of his his share uh, because we were kind of kind of hitting a spot where we were having some trouble, and um, and, and and similarly. Uh, that friendship was worth more to me than than trying to be petty about and, and trying to get a, a good deal out of him. We sat and talked about what it was worth, and I paid him what it was what I think I actually paid him a little more than he thought it was worth. Um, uh, same thing in 2006 when I started my North Store. I started with a partner who was supposed to kind of come. I was bringing the money, he was bringing the elbow grease, and uh, uh, and that wasn't working out for us. And and I. I gave him a, a pretty fair deal to buy him out uh, of a store which had just fairly started uh, about eight months before. A mm. uh, number of people who found out what the deal was on both of those uh, questioned my decision and said, oh, wow, you, you sure gave him an awful lot for that. Uh, and my, my statement on that was, these are two of my friends, and if we're going to quabble over a couple of grand, um, it's, it's not worth that. I would rather be done with this have paid him two thousand more than it possibly was worth, and come out of this with a friend, than, than try to pinch him for a couple of thousand and end up losing a friend forever, because, uh, this is this business is a finite small period of time, uh, you know friendships last your life, mm-hmm. and they're, it's very difficult for me to say, yeah it's not worth it I, I would rather have that, two or three thousand dollars back than 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 have these guys as my friends the rest of my life. Sounds fair to me. I'd probably I make so the too. same choice. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. But I think a lot of people get blinded by the by the minutia, or by the minutia is not the right word, but the the minor little details of 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 the money, and um, and you especially see that if there's if the money is tough, like it, it, you see stores mm-hmm. sometimes uh, kind of struggling to get along, and people know that there has to be a break, things aren't working right, but then now nobody has the money to maybe necessarily afford to get people out of it to. To, to stabilize it um, it can be hard Yeah, uh, that's why I recommend if you can do it without a partner do it without a partner if you can't if it ends up breaking make sure that you salvage as much of that friendship as you can because uh, you'll have the rest of your life to be thankful to yourself for not scrapping a friendship over a couple thousand dollars yeah money will come and go yep but uh, 
yeah. I would generally agree with that statement as well, that uh, I would think that most of the time the partnership will probably run into an issue well before the business would probably run into an issue if it were just yours. Uh, like yeah, just that's, personal things changing. Yep. Like you could, you know, one partner might want to move on to something else or get married and their, pri- their priorities change, something like that. Absolutely. It and happens all the then time. Then what do you do, right? Clear communications. That's, uh, that's the best thing you can do. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to plan five, ten years ahead. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. Whereas yeah. when we, for instance, when we opened our first store in 2001, mm-hmm. uh, we opened it with not even close to enough money. Like just not even close. Uh, we opened that store on $10,000. Nice. Uh, yeah, it was it, w- it was obscene how little we opened it on. Uh, we got very, very lucky. Um, I was connected on the magic side, so I, I was able to get the word out to people, and we started bringing people in right away, uh, w- which was helpful. Um, but we quite literally, if we didn't make a couple of grand in that first month in sales, we didn't have enough money to pay rent for month number two. Um, and, and that's not the way to do business, by the way. Uh, we didn't pay ourselves for a long, long time uh, from that business. Um, uh, because there just wasn't enough money to be there. It was probably about a year in before I started paying myself, and then was only a couple hundred bucks a month. Um, but I was surviving on other income. Uh, and, you know, down the line, it eventually it all worked out. But um, I'm sure the, uh, the odds were against you <laughs> yeah, at the, the time. The I don't think anyone good. would take that bet for you. I, I, the odds were pretty, pretty sure, pretty firmly against us. And, uh, but that, you know, that, opening it on that, on that stress of very little money, like something, if, uh, literally, if we hadn't made $3,000 in that first month, we couldn't pay rent. So, you know, what ends up happening then? Bad things end up happening. People get into fights. It's, uh, you know, it's a lot more stressful. We happen to be lucky and we're successful right off the bat. Um, and, and so we didn't ever have to come to that, that decision of, all right, well, this isn't working for both of us. You know, we, that, that took six, seven years to get to. All right. Hmm. That's an interesting story. It's quite a quite a tale, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I've uh, I've been through a lot over the last fifteen years or so. It's um, uh, it's it, it's been a blessing. Um, uh, the number of things that have come my way. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about your current business, like what you're working on right now. Working on right now, I the, I have two primaries, which is Legion Events, which is my event side business. Uh, I run Grand Prix tournaments for Magic. Uh, I just got back from Magic Cruise number seven once a year. I do uh, I organize a cruise for Magic players. We get between sixty and eighty people come on those usually, um, and uh, we just got back from that. We're in the process of planning the next several, uh, and then that that takes a big hunk of my time. And then the rest of it is taken uh, with Legion Supplies, which is, uh, as I mentioned before, we started mm-hmm. that in 2009 and started in my garage with a couple of pallets of sleeves. And and here we are uh, eight years later. Uh, Opening up warehouses uh, in Germany. Pushing nine, I guess, now this fall. Uh, and, and you know, we've, we've been doubling in uh, gross every every year. And now I'm now I'm looking at moving into Europe and uh, um, we just introduced our first patented item. Uh, I put out something called LifeCalc, which is a little calculator to, that keeps track of life totals, kind of similar to the apps that people put on their phones for magic. But uh, um, we, we designed it and patented it and uh, produced it, and we just started selling those a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that's cool. pretty exciting. Yeah, more than just here's a sleeve with a cool design on it. This is a, this is a thing we thought of, designed, uh, produced, and made start to finish. Uh, and the board game, uh, we did last year, uh, very similar to that. We 
um, actually there's there's a kind of a cool story in that you you were saying in our in our pre discussion that you were kind of interested in the process of, of getting a board game made. The interesting thing is the juxtaposition of my of my two jobs that put that board game on the planet. Um, so Jay Semerad, who is the guy who designed Foretold, which is the game we kickstarted last year, uh, has been a regular Magic player on my Magic cruises. That's how I met him. Um, and so a couple years ago, he approached me and said, "Hey, I've got this game I want to make, um, and you know a lot of people. Uh, who should I take this game to? Um, what is likely to happen if I take this game to a regular producer? How how do I get this made?" Um, and I said, well, let me take a look at it. And I know a bunch of people in the industry. I can probably suggest somebody to you. And I took a look at it and they said, holy cow, this game is incredible. Um, I kind of always wanted to make a board game. How about if I do it? And uh, uh, so that started it. Um, I gave him a little better deal than he was typically going to get it at, uh, at other, at other uh, producers. Um, because I, I told him, as much as I'm taking a risk on your game, I don't think it's actually a risk. I think the game is great, and I think once people play it, they're going to they're gonna love it. Um, you're taking a risk on me because I've never done anything like this before. I've, I've made things. I've, I've been producing sleeves, and I know how to work manufacturing and, uh, and importing, and, and all of that is good for me. But I, I've not produced a board game, and so he's kind of taking a risk on me that, I, that I'll be able to sell some games. Um, and, uh, and so far, it's been, been good. We, we kick-started last year, successfully kick-started. We had a 25,000 goal, and we hit 33. Um, we, we sold a couple thousand units through, through distribution when we first hit last fall, um, and reorders are starting to come in a little bit now, so we're, uh, we're doing pretty good with it. We're in the process of producing our, our first expansion to it as well, and we hope to have that out by Gen Con. Okay. Well, there's a, a whole ton of questions in there for me. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Yeah. It's like I said, it's kind of kind of complex and kind of complicated, and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, everything in my life seems to feed on the things that I've done before. Yeah, build on what works. That's yep. It's a good uh, good way to operate. But the uh, so your friend designed the game. Correct. Correct. Did he do it on his own? Like yep. uh, when he came to you with the game, was it? Uh, like a, a mock-up it's yeah, a board game he, right like did you just uh, yep. draw it you know put it together something functional he he put together something marginally functional um he uh so he he had had cards printed uh at some point he went and had some cards made uh because you anybody and their brother can find a place to print poker decks online um there's a whole bunch of the whole bunch of sites that do it, most of them actually end up printing in China and shipping to here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can get a very small number of, of playing cards printed for fairly cheap these days, um, as far as a promo uh, setup sort of thing goes. Um, the cool thing about this game is that it has a has a tile component. So we're actually building, or you're building a, uh, in this case, it's a, it's your, your temple. And uh, the little tiles that he was making were made out of beer coasters. So go to the bar next door, bought some beer coasters, cut them into squares, uh, slap some stickers on them, uh, and that's what we did for, for the tiles for the first several iterations. Um, and uh, you, can, you should mock them up with whatever you have available to you. Uh, many, many people just take card sleeves and, and put one of their collectible card games in a sleeve and put a piece of paper in front of it, and that's good enough for mocking. Um, the, what we found early on 
and it, it was a thing that 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 I was pushing at is I, I didn't want to keep printing a whole new version of the game every time something happened. Um, uh, it seemed to be the way that that, that uh, Jay was pr- pretty excited about it, and it's understandable. He wanted to see the evolution of the game. He wanted to reprint a game, and really, all you need is text on a card. You don't have to have art. You don't have to have anything mm-hmm. else. You just need to know what that card is going to represent and do. Uh, and uh, so you can do that on anything. Uh, you can do that on your home printer. Uh, pretty much any 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 game designer is going to have easy access to uh, easy access to to the, all of the different games that are available right now, um, uh, especially card games and sleeves. Uh, they're they're super easy to find. Um, mm-hmm. Print up a piece of paper, shove it in the front. You got a mock up, and uh, and it works just fine. Um, and that's what we did a lot at the beginning was just just little mock-ups. And then as the game would progress, you know, we, we'd kind of we'd print some up to take a look at it and see how it looked and how it was going to look when it played. And when we finally got to a spot where we thought we were really close to final design, then we went and had one of those. Uh, we did a, a short print version um, that cost us, I don't, I don't know, 15 or $20 to get enough cards printed for two or three games. And, uh, and then we were able to make several copies of a, of a game mock-up. We were still using the bar coaster tiles, uh, but we, we, had all, we had actual cards to use. And that could kind of see what they were going to look like when the players played them, which was really, really nice. Um, and then uh, we had to make a couple of switches from after that. We realized that part of the way we had printed them didn't really work on the card like we thought it would. Uh, so we, we made a modification, and the final product that got produced was based on being able to, to see that mock-up and know that it wasn't going to work quite right. Visually or gameplay-wise? Uh, visually. Um, they were a little too distracting. Uh, originally, our cards mm-hmm. had kind of a scroll on them. We wanted to kind of make it look like the cards were scrolls, and it was just a little too busy on the artwork. So when you were sitting to look at them, your eye was distracted. You, you weren't seeing the information you needed because there was too much too much detail on the card. So we actually had to dumb the cards down a little bit from a graphic standpoint, uh, make them a little more mellow. Uh, don't put quite so much stuff on it. Uh, one of the things we did, the, the hardest curves that we had, um, the tiles were similar. The, the tiles of our game, uh, the original concept would have had each tile be individually drawn. Uh, so there would have been a, you know, when there's a library that you can put into your temple, that would have been you know, on the on the sides of the tile, you'd see that it had shelves and books and maybe a lamp or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we realized as we were playing with them that they were, uh, it, it it made them too busy and it was too hard to 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 figure out what was going on that tile because there was so much of these little pieces of things on there. Uh, so we eventually stripped it way back and it, it's a simple tile and we went to low, uh, with icons to kind of di- dictate what kind of tile that was and uh, that that made the game play much easier. Um, the, the game plays at a table and sometimes you're a couple of feet away from one of your opponents being able to easily spot in his temple what the different things are he has before you go raiding is, is makes the game much easier to play. So you found that simplicity made the game better? Simplicity made the game better and, and 99% of the time that's actually true. Uh, another, another case of where simplicity made the game significantly better, um, the game that Jay first showed me at Gen Con... Uh, would have been two and a half years ago now, um, ha- was a pretty complicated hand process. There was a deck, and you draw a certain number of cards off of that deck, and then that's what you played your turn on, and any cards that were left would be used as a defense mechanism if somebody was to attack your temple. Um, and so there was a random element to that, where 
sometimes part of your deck was randomized, sometimes part of it wasn't, and and it made sense what he was trying to do and the way he wanted to do it, but it ended up being complicated and, and made the, the game much more difficult to play. Uh, eventually, we came to a point where we realized, what if we don't have a deck at all? Uh, we, so we have what we ended up producing was a deck building game that doesn't have a deck in it. Um, Interesting. You're, you're buying cards and you're putting them into either an offensive hand or a defensive hand, um, effectively. And uh, and that was that was that was like the breaking point of the game. Like we were we knew we were having a little trouble with it. It was uh, we wanted to make it cleaner. We wanted to make it easier to learn because a a, a big thing in capturing the people who are coming into play is making a game that they can easily pick up. It's okay to be complicated. It's okay to have a lot of things going. Uh, but if, if it takes you longer than a game or two games to figure out how to play this game, you're going to lose interest unless you're just really hardcore. Um, and while those guys are out there and they're awesome and we love them and we want to appeal to them on a complexity level, um, when you're trying to sell something and you want to sell many, many copies of this thing, you need to appeal to the broader audience, the broadest audience you, you possibly can. Mm-hmm. If I make a game that only is ever going to appeal to the people that want to play Twilight Imperium, uh, then, uh, then I'm going to narrow the amount of people who are willing to try my product. Uh, so we knew we had a very good game in uh, where the complexity comes in the card arrangements and what we can do with the cards. And the basics of the game are actually fairly simple once we boiled down the fact that we didn't have a deck that you had to try to control and manipulate. It's pretty simple. You're like, here's your offensive hand, here's your defensive hand. This got way easier for people to understand, and uh, it's quite simple. You see people, when we first start teaching them the game, they go, well, this seems really, really complicated, and we say, trust us, just watch two turns and you're done. And sure enough, uh, it happens really, really quickly once they see the process, and uh, and it's pretty easy to teach. And that was the big jump forward. I think that was the thing that really propelled us and said, okay, now we're ready to print because we were, we were kind of hanging on the edge going, we really want to print this and get it to Gen Con by the following year, but we weren't quite ready to get there yet. And this would have been in, uh, so this would have been in December of 2013, uh, last year, 2014. Yep. So it would have been December, 2013. We were, we were kind of on that edge. And then Jay came up with this idea, um, after actually after one of the other magic cruises he went on and he kind of talked to a bunch of the gamers that were on there and somebody said why is this even happening um do we need this and that kind of started the 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 down roll so uh, i think the lesson also to be learned from that is as a designer when you're designing a game uh much like when you're a store owner just try not to get emotionally attached to an idea Hmm. that ends up being extra weight um uh, probably is just in general a good business term or business business idea, um, if you get emotionally attached to things and you can't see them objectively, it gets much easier to get blindsided by them and and end up uh, ends up becoming a weakness. Um, Jay Jay was a great designer to work with because uh, while he did have occasionally he had a he had a he had a pretty good passion for I want this thing to happen. This is a thing I want to happen. Uh, specifically, uh, one of the things he fought for, and I eventually I eventually. You know, as as the producer, actually, eventually beat him down and said, "Ha ha, I win." Was the the tiles? He really wanted the the artwork on the tiles, um, and we finally convinced him that it was it was just not a thing that was feasible to get done. Uh, in addition to being more expensive, because we have to pay a graphic designer to draw those, um, it, it also just detracted from the game. Um, and then, so he was he was willing and able to take feedback on that and say. 
I really, really want this thing, but I understand what you're saying, and you're probably right. Uh, so let's try it without that. And, you know, maybe down the line, we can, if, if the game is super successful, we can make a re- set of replacement tiles with art on them, if, that, if that's a thing that people want. Hmm. Um, yeah, so his, his ability to objectively look at his game and say, uh, and not be committed to the fact that there had to be a deck for a deck building game uh, allowed us to come to this place where this, this game just evolved. Like almost overnight, when that, when that thing changed, it went from being a really good game to a really amazing game, I think. Uh, and really float it up. Yeah, that sounds pretty ideal, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a uh, um, it, it's a good thing, and, and it's part of the reason why I I told Jay that if I was going to make a game, I wanted to work with him on it because uh, I'd known him enough to know that he was he was introspective enough to say be able to step aside and go, yeah, right, this is what needs to happen. Uh, he's a pretty analytical guy. Yeah, being able to analyze objectively your ideas and it's a hard skill. Yeah, <laughs> it's a hard for sure. Skill. People are programmed to to not be objective. It's it's difficult to step step outside of your yourself and we analyze are, your ideas. Dispassionately. We are emotional beings. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you've got this awesome game designed. It's all ready, and he hands it to you, essentially, to produce it. Correct. So, what did you do? Like, did you uh, did you manufacture it yourself? Like, personally, you had the equipment. Uh, no, uh, we, we produced in, in China as, I, I don't know what the percentage is, is but it's high. I, I would put it at 75% of the world's board games are made in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of good factories in, in, in Europe. Uh, uh, Germany has a few that produce there. Um, uh, and there are a few that are made, uh, like, I believe Mayfair actually produces a significant part of their stuff here in the States. Uh, they produce it at different factories and they assemble it at their space. Um, Part of the beautiful thing for, for a fledgling board game producer like us, uh, there are turnkey solutions in, in China and, and in Germany as well, where you can say, here are all my things, make the game for me, put it in a box, wrap it, send it to me. Um, and, and that's what we did. We, you know, we, part, of, part of the thing that I'm able to do, because I have these relationships and I have, I have an import agent and I have all of the things that I need to, to get stuff from overseas to here easily, is... Uh, um, is the ability for Jay to come to me and say, uh, I want to make this thing, but I don't actually know where to start. And I think if I did, I would probably end up um, spending more money than I had to. Um, I, have, I have a little bit of negotiating power because I, have, uh, because I do other things. Uh, I can go to a factory and say, you know, what is your price? I can check a couple different places, compare the prices around. Um, well, sometimes it's, it's not direct comparison from one factory to another. There are quality issues. There are timing mm-hmm. issues. Uh, Chinese factories are notoriously late. Uh, if they tell you it'll take you 45 days, you need to count on 60 days. Um, that's, that's just one of the things that, like, as a first-time designer, they may not know. Um, it's, uh, it's not that they're specifically lying to you, but it's just, it's just kind of a culture of over-promising and under, under-delivering. They, um, they're always... There are always things that come up that need to change, like in a perfect world where everything you hand them a set of files and no changes ever happen and they never have any questions about it. Sure, maybe that happens in 45 days, but that never happens. Uh, there's always a, a piece of art that won't quite print right because uh, something was wrong with the file or, uh, or the sizing was a little wrong. They gave you the, the image, but it turns out it actually needs to be you know a millimeter shorter or... Um, like in the case of uh, we, we, we put up a, 
our little insert, our little plastic insert case is one of the things that happened with us. We told them how we wanted it designed, the little vacuum tray. Uh, and when it came back, it turned out that they had done a weird little bubble in it, and it was actually pressing on the actual board of the board game itself and causing a divot in the board game. <clears throat> uh, so when we got that sample in, then we had to go back and have them change that vacuum tray. You know, and that adds, every time you do one of those things, it adds three or four or five days to it. And uh, uh, especially because if you need to see a version of that back, now we're talking about flying something over from China. And every time you do that, you know, it's an extra 45 bucks for the overnight. And, you know, all, all of those little things that kind of go together. Jay basically came in and said, please take care of all that stuff for me. Mm. And we did. Lots of back and forth, eh? Yeah. Um, I also have... Uh, one of my employees, actually my very first full-time employee for Legion Supplies, uh, was a guy named Neil Rasmussen, who I've been working on and off with for 15-plus years. He's, he's been doing some graphic design for our websites and some flyers and different things that I've done over the years. He's, he's a gamer geek that's worked in pre-press uh, for a long, long time. And uh, I hired him away from his, uh, his corporate job to come work for me uh, almost two years ago now. And uh, he works for me full-time as my graphic designer. So we handled all of the graphic design in-house. Uh, all of the design that was on Foretold, uh, Neil did uh, from top to bottom. It, whatever you see, if you like the way it looks, that's that's Neil's benefit. If, if whatever you see, you don't like the way it looks, that's Neil's fault. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Neil and I have a really good working relationship on that in that um, and it, it's a one that I, one that I treasure, you know, he's, he, he's an artist. So on some level, there's a little bit of frustration that comes in because communication is always a little bit difficult when you're talking about ideas and asking somebody to pull an idea out of your head and put it on the paper. Um, and so, but Neil and I have, have for the most part hit really, really well on those points. Uh, we've figured out how to talk to each other over the last 15 years. And, and so when I say, I want that to be 10% cooler. <laughs> you know, something that generic, he'll go, I, like, I know exactly what you mean. And he comes back and he's got something that's 10% cooler. Um, it's, uh, I try to be as specific as I can, but sometimes really that, that's what my direction to him is. It's like, it's not quite cool enough. Can you, can you bring up the pizzazz a little bit? Uh, you know, give me a little more, a little more glow or something like that on it. And, uh, and, most of the time, he comes back with exactly the thing that was in my head, um, and it's uh, it's been a great relationship. Yeah, it sounds sounds uh, very convenient. Yeah, it having is having a and graphic designer one of the that you can work that with. I bought for Jay coming to me with this, and and any house that's going to mm -hmm. make your, that's going to make someone's board game, that's what you're you're hopefully getting is you're bringing you're bringing graphic graphic design with it. Yeah, that's what I would expect. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So how long did it take for the manufacturing to, to wrap everything up and everything was all set? Uh, so we started, uh, we had, we had, we had talked to the board, the manufacturer that we were going to go to. We made it, we, uh, we had a rough idea of what we were going to have to print. We got some quotes early in 2014. Uh, so we knew roughly what it was going to cost to make it. Uh, you know, there's going to be some variables and, and ultimately we ended up, uh, adding some tokens, taking away some dice, changing the number of cards that were involved in it. All of those little details move around a little. Mm -hmm. um, but we got our quotes in early 2013 or 2014 and then um, started working at trying to get everything ready to go to Kickstarter. And I think we launched Kickstarter in March. Uh, matter of fact, I think I was at uh, GTS uh, Gamma Trade Show in Vegas when it launched. Um, and, and we hit, you know, three or 4,000 or something like that on our first day. 
Um, and I saw because I remember being in Vegas, seeing it go live, and then walking around showing my phone to people, going, "Ha ha, we're on the way! Woohoo, we're going to make it!" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and and the Kickstarter is a is is, is a great thing. So there are pluses and minuses to it uh, from a from a board game production. You, you see it all over the place now. I mean, Kittens in a Blender went national yeah. news. Um, Kickstarter has a benefit, and that benefit is that uh, it's really a good sounding board. I put this idea out. If people resonate with it, if they think it's cool, we'll go ahead and make it. If not, you know, we've only lost our time and the energy that we put into making the Kickstarter. Um, you don't have to go spend fifty thousand dollars producing a board game, putting it out there, and having people go. Meh, no thanks. Yeah. Um, on the other side of it, uh, it disorients retailers a little bit uh, because what you're doing is you're putting a couple hundred or maybe a couple thousand copies of something into into the market that it, that now they can't sell. Um, so if they are interested mm-hmm. in it, it, it kind of bring it, it brings down their interest level. Uh, so you really have to have uh, a perfect storm of things to make Kickstarter work on lots of levels, which is selling directly to the customers and still getting your retailers excited enough about it that they want to order it. Um, anyway, so uh, we we were getting, we were ready to, we launched Kickstarter in March. Uh, we closed Kickstarter in April, uh, successfully funded. And, uh, and then the idea was to have the stuff at the board game manufacturer by the end of April. And uh, we ended up not actually getting everything that they needed to them until mid to end of May. Uh, we severely underestimated how much time it was going to take to get the rule book done. Uh, and one of the things that the designer was supposed to have done was template all of the cards and the rules and things. And he, he hadn't, he, he'd been trying to get some help from some people that he knew and that, that didn't pan out. So I ended up having to bring in one of my employees who was a level three judge, um, uh, the level three magic judge to help with the templating and putting the rules together. Uh, so we ended up stitching that up and, and getting that all done uh, and, and sent it to production somewhere around. We started it in mid-May, and uh, we gave them the last final bits near the end of May uh, with an expected 45-day uh, print time, which ends up taking two months. Mm-hmm. So it, got, it ended up finishing up somewhere, somewhere in early to mid-July, uh, and uh, with, with our intention, we really wanted to sell it at Gen Con. Uh, and here's another thing that we did that I think is pretty important, and I think sometimes people forget this. Um, we wanted to sell it at Gen Con, um, so it was important to us that the people who backed us on Kickstarter were the first people to get it. Um, so we had to airship over uh, not just the, the the couple hundred units we wanted to have at Gen Con to sell, but we also had to airship over the 300 and some units that our backers bought uh, because we couldn't, we couldn't send, we couldn't sell at Gen Con if we hadn't sold to our, if we hadn't sent to our backers. Uh, that just would have been really uncool. And yeah, you treat those up. people right. Correct. Uh, they they believed in us early, and and they they did not need to be uh, uh, redheaded stepchildren at that point. Um, yeah, they took a chance. They took a chance on us, so we we made sure, and it cost us a little bit extra money in the grand scheme of things. You know, it ended up costing us probably five or six thousand in air shipping to get those things wow. sent out to them in order to be able to sell at Gen Con, which we felt was very important. We wanted to debut it at Gen Con, uh, and we ended up being right next to Board Game Geek uh, booth, which was great. We got a lot of press, and we ended up coming off the uh, uh, coming off the Board Game Hot Keep uh, Board Game Geek Hot List at number two for Gen Con of 2014. Um, 
which was which is important, and it's exactly the sort of push that we we wanted to get from Gen Con. Mm-hmm. So it, that that went pretty well for us, and ended up making a hard decision. You know, like I said earlier, it cost us many thousands of dollars to get that done, uh, but in the grand scheme of things, it was probably worth it. Okay, so. A lot of questions again. All I, kinds I, I've of. I've thrown so much into so many details. You can't even process it. <laughs> yeah. So why Kickstarter and not a different route? Well, uh, so we we discussed it early. Um, I've as as a retailer now, former retailer, but as a retailer, mm-hmm. I also have a love hate with Kickstarter. So I understand that it's it, it's a thing that can sometimes actually be a negative, um, and and I I was really really aware of that. Ultimately, what it came down to, and the reason we decided to do it, is because I'd never made a board game before. People didn't know me as a board game creator. Uh, so if I call up my distributors and say, hey, I've got a board game, they're going to like, oh, yeah, sure you do. That's mm-hmm. real cute. Um, so we sort of needed the Kickstarter as actual some sort of legitimacy. And I knew that down the long scope of things, it would potentially hurt me with retailers saying, well, the Kickstarter, we don't care to bring it in uh, with some of them. But I also knew that if we had a big enough success that, that we'd actually be able to do it. And I, and I think we, we hit a perfect line. I don't think we're quite as successful through Kickstarter converting to retailers we'd like to be, uh, but we did pretty good. Um, uh, we ended up moving about 300 and 320 units through Kickstarter, including direct-to-retail. We had a retail tier, which I think is important. Um, you just had to send us your tax ID to prove that you are a retailer and that we, we would let you buy a, a case of six for cheaper um, because we wanted to make sure that retailers were not left out in the cold. And I think we, I think we had about six or seven retail backers uh, on that including one guy who, who brought in like 30 copies because he was just... He believed. Loved, yeah, just loved the game. We, we sent him a demo copy early and he was, he was well hooked. And, um, and that was uh, Mike Fortino down in Tampa. Um, uh, suddenly forget the name of the store, but uh, for some reason. Anyway, uh, so we decided we needed the Kickstarter really for legitimacy and saying, let's let the people tell us that this game is good. Um, and... We had said realistically, even if it fails, we're probably going to print it. But at the very least, it was it was getting us some press out there. And depending on the the value or the, the success of the Kickstarter, determine how many units we're going to print. Does the Kickstarter fail? Maybe we'll print a thousand copies and and try to sell it and see if we can build it from there. The Kickstarter was fairly successful. We hit our goal. Um, we actually ended up printing more copies than the Kickstarter f- uh, funds would actually pay for. Uh, we, we ended up printing 4,000 units, uh, which was enough. Uh, basically, we decided how many to print based on how many would fit in a container. Yeah, that makes sense. You've proved that, that people want it, so yeah, yeah. theoretically more people will want it. Correct. So if and, and that's we're, and part of why we're, we're, we're kind of really pushing on the expansion now is, is uh, we think the expansion is really great. And I think once we put it into the store, uh, I think one more people might see that and, 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 and come along for the ride on the first game. Hmm. So did and you actually still, get the... this day? We've we've been out for so we kickstarted it. We kickstarted it just over a year ago now. Uh, it's been on the shelves for uh, just under six months, and uh, um, and we're still every time we demo it to somebody, uh, we sell a copy of the game. Uh, so we know that there's we know that there's there's still people out there looking to find it and uh, and, and discovering how great of a game it is. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Did you actually uh, have a lot of retailers tell you that 
they didn't want to stock the game because of the Kickstarter? Um, not us specifically about this one, uh, but I'm on a number of I'm on a number of uh, of, of uh, groups on Facebook and, and various places uh, for retailers and game industry people, uh, and it's a regular subject of conversation. Um, the the basic The basic census is if you do a Kickstarter and you don't get any given me any way to com- uh, to participate in that thing, uh, then I'm not interested in even picking your game up after it comes out. Hmm. Uh, and and that's not everybody, uh, but it's probably the majority of people. Uh, they they don't feel the need to pick something up if it came in a Kickstarter. The the logic being that anybody who's interested in that thing got it at Kickstarter already, so yeah. they're not going to buy my copy. And, and I think there's probably a little bit of truth in that. If you sell a thousand or two thousand units on Kickstarter, yeah, maybe that's the right. Maybe somebody won't come get it. But um, like in our case, we. Uh, we didn't spend any extra money on advertising. Uh, we put up the Kickstarter and just depended on our social networks to, to keep pushing it. Um, we we um, we paid for a little bit of Facebook bump here and there. Uh, I think we spent a grand total of two hundred dollars on that, and I think we spent you know seven or eight hundred or whatever it is on Board Game Geek to put an ad up there. That was all of our advertising for Kickstarter. Beyond that, it was just us working social media sharing it to our friends, asking our friends to share it and moving it out because we, we've all like Jay and I both have a pretty intense network of, of geeks that are there. And so uh, if we can get our circles of friends to influence their circles of friends, then we, then we bring it in. Mm-hmm. Good thing to keep in mind if somebody was considering using Kickstarter as their launch pad. Yep. Okay. Uh, second question. I'm trying to remember if we've talked about so much. <laughs> Yeah, I apologize. It's it's uh it's kind of a problem I have. I've uh I've done a couple of podcasts in the past and I tend to just ramble on and uh and, and, and uh always end up there's half the time I'll get past and I'll start talking about something and I've forgotten what the question actually is before uh before I get to it. So if I haven't answered something, please feel free to uh to ask it again. Yeah, tangents are fine. Especially if the story is compelling, so <laughs> and tangents are kinda of where I live. <laughs> uh, okay, well, if somebody were thinking, if they had a game right now that they wanted to make, they or they wanted to pursue that that course, and they didn't know you, who could do, take care of pretty much everything for them, mm-hmm. what would you recommend? Um, well, it's there. There are different levels of things here. Like uh, anybody is theoretically capable of producing their own game. Um, you can you can go hit websites. Uh, that'll take you to manufacturers in China that will do it all for you. Um, there are a lot of things that they don't tell you about and that are hard to figure out. Uh, one of those is the importing. How do I get that game from China to here? Uh, there, there can be some incredibly complicated things. And I, I personally know some people who have brought things over that ended up just having a nightmare with, with importing. Um, how so? One, uh, at, so the the factory will tell you, sure, we'll ship it. We'll charge you eight hundred dollars for shipping. Um, that's all it'll take to get these ten pallets of things over to you. Eight hundred bucks, super cheap. And you're like, wow, eight hundred bucks to ship all this stuff from China? That sounds like a crazy deal. Uh, well, as 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 often is in the world, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Um, what they're not telling you is that there's a whole lot of paperwork you have to fill out. Uh, for the government that says, where is this coming from? What kind of thing is it? Uh, there's a NAICS code that has to be, uh, which is a, basically it's, it's a, called a harmonized code uh, that says, here's the kind of thing that I'm doing. Here's the kind of thing that I'm bringing. 
that tells them what sort of duties have to be placed on it. Um, in general, board games or, or complete games don't have any duties on them, but you still have to flag them right to get it to, to, to pick that up. Um, and you still have to get all your paperwork done right. Uh, that's where an import agent comes in very, very handy. Uh, and to this day, I actually just use an import agent. I don't fill out all the paperwork myself. Um, and uh, I, I pay someone uh, more money than it would cost me to have just somebody ship it directly in order that I don't have to fill out all that crazy paperwork. Hmm. Because um, like one of the, one of the papers that comes, uh, that comes to you actually is almost impossible for you to fill out on your own. It involves calling into, it involves calling into uh, a government agency and saying, uh, "I need these things," and then working your way through bureaucracy and trying to figure all that out. It's very, very difficult, and and frustrating, uh, and and can take someone who's excited about getting a game in and then turn them in, turn it into a nightmare for them. And I, I know a few people who've who've gone through that process and and have said, you know, that it's it was just the worst time of all of their making a game was just trying to get it here. Uh, hmm. And now you find out that it doesn't include, like that $800 doesn't actually include getting it to the port. It's just on the container. Now you have to, now you have to pay somebody else 600 bucks to pick it up at the manufacturer and take it to the port. Now you have to pay somebody else eight or $900 to pick it up at the U.S. side port and bring it to you. Um, and then uh, you also have to pay uh, filing fees and uh, customs fees and, and all of these other things. And now suddenly your $800 bill that you thought you were paying to get your thing in the States suddenly turns into $3,500. And that happens pretty regularly. And that's a a thing to watch out for. If somebody's trying to make a game, um, I highly recommend finding an import agent as opposed to just trusting your factory to take care of it for you. Uh, I I personally use ALG Worldwide. Um, uh, They've been real good to me. Uh, But there are a number of, of agents that can do that for you. Good advice. Okay, so step one, find an import agent to handle all that stuff for you. <laughs> I would recommend it. Uh, and uh, I could understand maybe if someone who was completely otherwise unemployed and didn't have the money for it but had infinite time uh, and also had the patience uh, to handle it, maybe that's a, a viable thing for them. Um, but unless you literally have nothing else to do and have all of the patience in the world, uh, I would recommend getting an agent. Okay. Hmm. So, import agent, critical. Uh, uh, very important. Critical is probably not the right word, but very important. For, for most people, probably. For the most part, yeah. Okay. And then locating a manufacturer, just Google it? Yeah, probably just Google it. There's a, there's a number of factories out there. Um, um, I haven't done it myself because I use recommendations from, from a number of other people. Uh, but uh, But I can tell you, Probably once a month uh, as a manufacturer, I get emails from people that say, hey, we're a board game manufacturer. Uh, you can also go to things like Gen Con uh, and, and other, other manufacturer trade shows, uh, and there will be people set up there that say, we make board games. Would you like to make them for us? Uh, and then that. Uh, there, there are a lot of, a lot of there's lots of availability. Uh, there's, there, there are probably dozens of places you can get your, your board games made if you want to have a turnkey in-house solution done. Uh, most of the places that do it are actually just paper printers, uh, and they'll they'll source your dice and they'll source your mm-hmm. uh, your trays and they'll source your whatever tchotchkes you need to put in there. 
they'll source them somewhere else and bring them in for you. Um, if you, another thing, if you have a lot of the time, if you find a paper printer and you can say, what do you actually produce there? Will you please just produce that, produce the box, and then I will go find the other pieces and have it sent to you. I know people that do that or have done that, uh, and that's a fine way to go. You'll probably save yourself a few bucks getting that done, but uh, there's something to be said for uh, for that turnkey solution, having, having someone go in and say, uh, we can find all the pieces that you need. Uh, yes, it's going to cost you more than if you went and did it yourself, but here, that's one more thing off of your plate. Uh, and it's worth paying somebody for that, especially when some, a, lot, a lot of the time it, it, it means cents per game as opposed to dollars per game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it's going to save you X amount of time and it's only going to be a tenth of X for right. the, uh, the amount of money, I might as well go for it. Right, if your game costs when it's all said and done, if you're just producing for something pretty simple with some tokens in it, if your game cost from China is going to be $5 for just the game or and $6 with the game and the tokens and everything else that's got to go with it, or if you source it all yourself and get it shipped all over and pay for the shipping and playing around with it, ultimately you end up being at 538 for all of the things, mm-hmm. it's probably worth that that extra $0.62 cents to have somebody take care of that for you and when you're talking about uh, over the course of a, of a lot of units. You know, yeah, especially bucks if maybe it's your first games. time. Yeah, especially if it's your first time. Yeah. Okay, and how did you, well, I'm sure it's easy for you to get into Gen Con, but uh, yeah. if somebody hadn't been there before or they had never had a, a booth or something like that, if is that a thing to, that they can just apply for? You can. Uh, so Gen Con has this cool thing, and then Gamma Trade Show, which is a, if, if you look up uh, uh Gamma.org, I think, is their website. They do a trade show every year in Vegas, although I believe they're moving to Reno soon. Um, they do a trade show in Vegas every year, and then Gen Con has the same thing. They have something called an entrepreneur's row or an entrepreneur section, uh, which is a slightly less cost uh, than a normal booth. And Typically, you have to have some, credit, uh, some, some qualifications of having only been in business for a year or two years, and they'll give you a booth a little bit cheaper. Um, they're usually a little out of the way. They're not out in the main thoroughfare, uh, but it's it's a foot in, um, and that's, that's a good place to start. Um, getting on the main floor of Gen Con can be problematic, uh, especially the way it's been growing. Um, I've I've been setting up at Gen Con every year for a while now, and uh, um, I can't even expand my booth uh, the size that I want it to be because there's just not any any space available. I say. Uh, yes, I would like another booth next year. I would like two extra spaces. And they come back and they say, ha-ha, you get the spaces that you have because we just don't have enough room. So getting getting in as a new person is, is can be difficult. Your best bet is to get into an entrepreneur row. Your best bet is to try to get in at least a year early. Um, if you're not booking next Gen Con by this Gen Con, you're probably not getting in. Okay, then. Yeah, so really, really early. Uh, I think GTS, uh, the Gamma Trade Show, is probably a little less worried about that time frame on that, although they did sell out this year again as well. Um, I had decided not to show at Gamma for a while, and then uh, so about a month or a month and a half out, I thought, well, I, actually, I've got some time. Maybe I will go to Gamma. And I called them, and they were out of space, so I wasn't able to get in there. Um, so as early as you can possibly manage to figure out that you want to go to a thing, whether no matter what con it is, uh, whether it's Gen Con or whether it's a small local con, uh, as soon as you have an inkling of a time where you think you want to be in there, contact the organizers of that place and try to get in as early as you can. Um, because uh, cons are growing significantly all over the country. Even little cons are, are growing. And, uh, and 
you you need to get in earlier and earlier for these things every year. Yeah, I can testify to that. There's a quite a few just popping up all over the local area where I am right now. A whole bunch of them, pretty much one a month, somewhere yeah. celebrating some form of you know geek um, culture. Correct. There's uh, there's and there's down in Texas every year. There's boardgamegeek.com or boardgamegeek.com con or boardgamegeekcon. I guess they call it. Mm. Um, uh, and that was another one that I, I decided about six months out that I wanted to go to and they were out of space. Um, so we didn't set up at, at one of the biggest board game geeks, pure board game conventions. Uh, we didn't set up there with our game this year because we didn't decide until too late to do it. So uh, even the big guys, (laughs) you know, we we, not that I'm a big guy. I'm probably a small to mid, mid mid-sized guy, but, uh, you can even get shut out. So, um, be fanatic and get in there early. But trade shows are the way to go. You would say? Uh, it, they're pretty important. They're a good way to reach your customer base. Uh, specifically with with uh, like the Gamma Trade Show, you're you're uh, you're peddling your wares specifically to retail stores. Like that's a retail mm-hmm. convention. Uh, uh, you don't see many end users, uh, like actual game players. Although obviously many game store owners are also game players. But what you're talking to is the people who buy for stores. And you're convincing them to, to call their distributor and ask for your game or order it from you directly. Uh, Gen Con, you're actually dealing a little bit more, not a little bit more, quite a bit more with end users. But you're still hopefully driving it in the same way. If you're selling direct, you're selling direct to the customers. Um, but you also, you're making sure you're, you're getting your brand out and you're making people aware of your thing so that when they go back to the store, even if they didn't buy it from you, they're talking to their store owner and saying, hey, I saw this really cool thing at Gen Con. You should consider bringing it into your store. Uh, and that's a pretty important thing to do. Yeah, still getting the word up. Yep, it's all it, that's your marketing. Like, uh, um, it's it's really difficult for us to market in more traditional forms, whether TV or radio or magazines. Uh, it doesn't work for the sorts of things we do. Uh, the sorts of things we do travel by word of mouth significantly better, uh, and you're much more likely to get sales from that. Um, a recommendation from a friend, uh, much more like like books. Like, uh, when's the last time you just walked into a bookstore and picked up a book and knew nothing about it? Chances are now uh, somebody you know has read that book and said, hey, I read this really good book. You should try it. Um, games are really, really similar. Um, yeah, there's a reason why uh, Oprah's them. Book Club is so popular. Right. People right. take they recommendations very seriously. Yep. That's the way to go. Okay. Well, that was all great stuff. <laughs> it was actually it was very interesting. I have not actually explored the publishing of a game side, and I always kind of wondered about it. I've, yeah, it's a... Uh, we're like I said before, we're we're kind of a small. We've done exactly one game. Um, I've done some other manufacturing, but really helped me along to that. There are certainly a lot of people out there that are that are better at it and and do more of it than I do, uh, um, and that's so. It, I, I guess the thing that I bring is uh, kind of a newbie aspect to it. Like I, I just went through this; it's still fresh in my head, and and uh, um, the challenges that came up uh, are, are all still pretty fresh. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I wanted to know because if somebody's approaching that from the first time, that's exactly what they're going to go through. Right. In a slightly different, sure, different way because they don't have a successful business to back them up necessarily. But yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I wanted to jump back a little bit. All right. Because you mentioned the Magic Cruise. Yep. Sell me the Magic Cruise. <laughs> Tell me why the Magic Cruise so, is awesome because I always wanted to go. It's uh if so we have a we have a Facebook page uh it's uh, our Facebook group it's called Magic Cruisers, um, search for us ask 
there and you can see all of the people talking about it. We're, there's a lot of threads going on right now where we're, we're actually setting up the next three cruises leading up to our 10th anniversary. Uh, our 10th anniversary is only three years away, um, which is incredible. When we first did this, it was, a, it was a thing that we're like, yeah, it might be kind of fun. We'll do it once and see what happens. Uh, there was a lot of stress getting to it uh, as far as from an organizing side of it. Uh, it's very different. It's a different sort of thing that happens. And I was really, really worried about it as we were heading into it. And then you get on the boat, and then it stops mattering. All of that stuff just stops mattering. Uh, you have fun. You're surrounded by geeks, and you're all playing magic and board games and drafting. And, and uh, um, there were many rounds of Sushi Go played on this last one, and uh, uh, many, many drafts. A couple of different people brought a box of Modern Masters with them and found seven other people to go draft it with them. Um, we, we have scheduled sanctioned tournaments, uh, but that's only a very small piece of what what the Magic Cruise is. It really is more about the fellowship and the community with, with these people who are going with you. And the day we go out and see these wonderful, beautiful ports and and swim with fish and, and climb mountains and parasail and, and uh, all of the different things you do on a cruise... Uh, and then at night we come in, we have supper, we go to the to the little convention room that they have in there, and we play magic uh, and board games and, and everything else that's there. Uh, it, it really is, I just posted to my Facebook page uh, when we got back from this, uh, that it's my favorite week of the year. Uh, it is always my favorite week of the year. Uh, it doesn't matter how stressful it was leading up to it, getting everybody set and making sure they have the things they want. The second we walk on that boat, it's just another it's just all of that stuff melts away and it just becomes fun. Uh, we have a, we have a pretty strong core of regulars we've built up over seven years where, uh, you know, somewhere around 20 to 40% of the cruise is made up by people who have done it already at least once. Uh, so there's a real nice core of people that are there that can say, Oh yeah, don't worry about that. This is what happens. Um, and everybody's mellow and everybody's cool. There's usually a few Watsi employees that come. There's a couple that we've kind of snagged as regulars that come pretty often. Um, and uh, uh, it's it's relaxing. It's the most relaxing way to play Magic you've ever had in your entire life. Uh, yeah, it sounds pretty uh, awesome. Yeah, if you're going to do a vacation, um, a great success story from just, just recently. Uh, we, we had a mother come on with her son. Uh, first time they, they did this, it happened to line up to his spring break, so... They were able to come for the first time. Um, and, uh, you know, and she came on and she wasn't sure what was going to happen or where things were going to go. Um, about halfway through the cruise, we were kind of chatting with her by one of the many, many bars that are around the place. We were having a, an adult beverage and, and, and just talking. And, and she told us what a great time they were having and how it had really helped her connect back with her son. Um, she, to the point where she said that, uh, he asked to go have pictures with her, uh, and uh, which he's like, I can't remember the last time he specifically asked to have a picture with me in it. And uh, he he had such a great time that he that he just wanted to share that. And um, and they, that's the success stories that live with me, and the reason that I keep doing magic cruises every year. Every every year, there's one or two or five stories like that where somebody comes up and said, "This was just the best week of my life," and I, I'm. I may not be able to do it again next year, but I'm definitely coming back. Um, and that's, uh, it's really fulfilling and satisfying as an organizer. They have all of these people come up to you and say, that was the best time I've ever had. Not, not the best time I've had in a couple of months, the best time I've ever had. And, uh, and that's a thing. 
that's why people go on the Magic Cruise. Uh, they go on once because it sounds interesting, and then they always come back. If they don't come back, it's because they haven't found a one that works for them yet, but they will. We constantly get people saying, you know, I can't make this year, but I'm hoping to make next year. And, and uh, it's uh, almost like they feel guilty of saying that I can't come this year. Like, well, don't, don't feel guilty about it. That takes all the pleasure away from it. You know, get here when you can get here. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> it, it is wonderful. That's a, a fine, fine word for it. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, I, I encourage anybody who's listening that, that thinks that they might want to do it to uh, go hit our magic phase. It's, it's, uh, it's a controlled group and every it's pub- posted publicly, uh, but you, you have to ask to be a member and that's because we had people continually coming in and spamming our group with bad stuff. So I, uh, I closed it to where we have to approve, but we approve everybody who comes in. So come in and ask to be added to the magic cruisers group. And, and as long as you don't post something about Ray-Ban sunglasses or your new magic single site, uh, we will happily add you. Okay. So is that the best way to uh, get on the boat? Best way to get on the boat, uh, uh, com slash MC. It's still got this year's information up on it, uh, but in the next few days we'll be putting next year and hopefully the next three years of information up on it. Uh, this is the farthest out we've ever been. We decided we wanted to kind of ramp to something for the 10th anniversary. So cool. we've scheduled, we're starting to schedule three years worth in a row. Um, uh, the next one is going to be out of New Orleans during Mardi Gras. Uh, nice. So that should be that should be pretty close to off the chain. Cool. So what's uh, year 10 going to be like? Uh, t- year 10 is going to be in the Mediterranean. Um, we've, we've had a lot of interest from European players who would like, who would like to do it, and it's just too expensive to get over. Um, we decided that year 10 we should do something big and spectacular, so... Uh, there's only so many times you can go to the places in the U.S. They're all there are a handful of cruises, and once you've done a few, you've, you're kind of just redoing the same ports again. Mm-hmm. Um, the cool thing is that most people can't afford to go every year, so when they go, they're they're picking one that they haven't done yet. Uh, the cool thing about the Mediterranean is nobody's done it yet, so um, yeah, it'll be a new experience for everybody. It'll be a new experience for everybody. We we typically work with Carnival, mostly because it's the most inexpensive cruise line. Uh, they provide all of the service of all of the other ones, um, uh, the, all of the more expensive cruise line, but they're they're a little bit a little bit less expensive than most of the other ones. Uh, and the cool thing about kind of our series as we were looking at where we're going in the next year is Carnival is currently building the biggest boat it's ever built, and it's gonna they're gonna commission it sometime in 2016 mid uh, mid 2016 I think it's uh, it's set to go. And then once that happens, we, um, we're going to book it uh, for the Mediterranean because it's going to spend winters in the U.S. and the Caribbean. It's going to spend uh, summers in the Mediterranean. So we're going to book that boat for the Mediterranean, and that, that'll be our 10th anniversary cruise. Uh, it holds 4,000 people. It's got a two-level uh, water park. It's got an IMAX theater going to be built into it. Uh, it has an actual brew pub. And when I say a brew pub, I don't mean a place they serve you beer. It's an actual brew pub. They're brewing beer on the boat <laughs> that they serve to you in that bar. Uh, it's uh, it's pretty insane. It's a it's a city on the water. Uh, Four thousand people. I I grew up in a town significantly smaller than that. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds intense. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's uh, really really looking forward to it. Most likely, we're going to leave out of Barcelona, Spain, and uh, uh, it'll go around Italy and France, and I think couple of them go to Greece. Uh, I'm not sure if we can get one done to Greece. It'll depend on the timing. But uh, 
uh, yeah, it'll be a lot of cool things to go see. Cool. Well, I'm sold. <laughs> Good. We'll see you on the boat. I sure hope so. Okay, well, it's uh, an hour and 25 minutes, so we're going pretty long at this point. I, I think I, I think you mentioned when we were talking, you said that you wanted to do, uh, you needed about a half an hour of material, and I mentioned that the last time <laughs> I did a podcast with somebody, you meant we meant to do about a half an hour or 45 minutes and ended up going for two hours. Uh, so I apologize. I tend to wander. That's okay. It's easy to do when the stories are good. <clears throat> it doesn't matter. All right. But uh, it's been great talking to okay. you. And I think we got some really cool stuff. And yeah. Is uh, there anything that you else? Please, uh, please let me know when it goes and I'll help share the link out. Yeah, sure. Is there anything else you want to share? Um, I can't think of anything. I think I touched on pretty much all my stuff. Uh, kind of in a little nutshell of the events and the stores and the sale of the stores and the growth of the supplies business and now branching international and building board games. It's, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lucky man. I, I get to do a lot of fun things for a living. I work hard. I work upwards of 60 hours a week, most weeks. Uh, but, uh, um, as they say, if you do something you love, you never work a day in your life. And, and that's where I'm at. Perfect. If, People want to get a hold of you, or if they want to buy your stuff, or if they want to join the Magic Cruise, where do they find you? Uh, Magic Cruise is legionevents.com slash MC, or just legionevents.com, and you can link to it. Uh, if, uh, if you're looking to get Legion Supplies products, uh, legionsupplies.com. Uh, our store is at legionsupplies.com slash store. Uh, but again, you can link from the, from the base page. If you just want to keep up to date on, on what we're doing with both Legion Events and Legion Supplies, they both have Facebook pages. Uh, come find us and like us. Just search for Legion Events or Legion Supplies and, and like us. And as we update things, you'll see them. Cool. Well, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show and talking to me. Right, I really bet. appreciate it. I uh, hope it was some good stuff. I think it was. All right. Cheers. Do you want to run better Magic events with higher turnouts and players battling one another to stay on top of the standings week after week? Well, now you can. MTGleaderboards.com is a system for creating and managing everything you need to run killer Magic tournaments create seasons, track player performance, and get your players pumped to play in your store every day of the week. Check out mtgleaderboards.com, sign up today, and you'll get the early adopter special rate. Supercharge your magic events with mtgleaderboards.com. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Maniverse Podcast. If you're looking for articles on game store entrepreneurship, head over to maniversesaga.com. That's the community where we talk about tips, tactics, strategies to build a bigger game store and forge a better community. While you're there, sign up for the email address and we'll send you the next edition of the Maniverse Podcast directly to your inbox next Friday. While you're out there on the internet, make sure you go check out Foretold and the Magic Cruise. And as always, thanks for listening.